This episode of Continuing Mission is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome everyone to another episode of Continuing Mission, our look at the ways in which fans are keeping Star Trek alive. I'm your host, Christopher Jones, and the primary focus of this show is on the fan series, or as I prefer to call them, independent productions, that tell new stories set in the Star Trek universe. On a previous show, we talked with Star Trek Horizon creator Tommy Kraft in broad terms about shooting and processing video, working with green screens, and creating visual effects. In this episode of Continuing Mission, we're joined once again by Tommy to talk about how these techniques apply to creating an actual Star Trek film, including building virtual sets on the NX-04 Discovery, integrating the Discovery crew with these environments, and the importance of sound design and capture in making the visuals believable. Hello, Tommy. Welcome back to Continuing Mission. I'm really excited today. We're going to continue the discussion that we had a few shows back about video production. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, It was a fun discussion last time, and I'm sure it will be this time too. Yeah. Last time you were here, we talked a lot about green screens and video processing and such. And right at the tail end of that conversation, we talked a bit about Horizon, specifically your Enterprise era film. So this time around, we want to really talk about Horizon itself and the things that you're doing with that production, the unique challenges that you've had and the different approaches. And, you know, I thought the best way to lead into that would probably be just to talk a little bit about why you decided to go virtual with so many of your sets and locations instead of going out and shooting on location or trying to build some other sets. Is it is it purely a financial thing or are there things that you can do here that really excited you? It's it's a little of both, but more financial than uh than anything else. Because when I first started, it's it basically wasn't even a question that especially with Enterprise there was going to be no building the sets because those are probably the most complex and expansive sets they've had in Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons we see a lot of TOS sets is because they are, generally speaking, much more simple to construct and to maintain, whereas Enterprise is much more detailed in its construction, both due to the fact, I think, that it's just newer with more up-to-date production standards and because they were very thoughtful in how they designed them in terms of modern spacecraft. They wanted them to feel very utilitarian and less futuristic per se. Mm -hmm. So one of my first projects was even before I completed writing was to, was when I started modeling the bridge itself. And I basically combed through 
every episode and Google search I could think of and got as many screenshots as I could find of the various sections of the bridge and went to town in 3ds max and I I constructed it all with uh, real world measurements so it's pretty accurate scale wise to the bridge too and the the big thing here is I did it all for the cost of 3ds max which I bought with an educational discount so like 300 bucks whereas a real set which I would actually prefer in this case would be I, I wouldn't even want to speculate it would be many <laughs> a lot more than three hundred dollars. Yeah. I don't think you can get an educational discount on materials to build an actual <laughs> set, can you? Or labor. And that's <laughs> that's the other important thing to mention too, is that when building real sets, there's not really any way to do it all yourself. Right. Unless you're Benjamin Cisco. You know, he <laughs> built a spaceship by himself. Right. Pretty quickly too. It is off time. Add. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so it's, that was, I did it basically because I was still finishing college at the time. And so I did that in my spare time. You know, I'd come home from class sometimes in class <laughs> on my laptop. Uh, <laughs> I'd be putting, you know, some details on the bridge and it kind of, it allowed me to be more imaginative too, because I hadn't finished the script yet. And so I then began to think outside the box more in terms of some of the things I was writing because I thought, well, if I'm going to be doing all these sets virtually anyway, then I can become even more expansive in some of my designs than I would have if I was trying to do it on a budgeted physical set or even a larger budgeted physical set. In terms of before, I want to talk more about building those actual sets for sure. As you've gone along, though, so it was a money-saving move in the beginning. Yeah, but I've actually become really, I've actually started to really enjoy the process yeah, of that's what visual I was effects. Wondering, yeah. yeah, like have you discovered things along the way where even though you got into it because obviously you couldn't build a real set, you've realized that, wow, you know, I could do this, which even if I were building a real set, maybe I couldn't do this thing or it would be very, very difficult. Yeah, totally. And the thing with me is I love movies and I love to learn. And so a lot of it became this fun experiment and learning experience of how much can I do with visual effects. And computers and CG and gaming and what have you have always been a really huge interest of mine. So this became almost more of a it, it became sort of a I don't want to say experiment but it, it was something where I could learn a lot along the way and it gave me a lot of skills that I wouldn't have otherwise had and that I found quite enjoyable mm -hmm. well let's talk about building the actual virtual sets you talked a little bit about doing the bridge already and the fact that you used real world measurements so that it's pretty accurate to what we saw on the show and and in terms of when your actors are in there, you know, it all feels right. What's the process like of actually building one of these sets, though? Well, it, it, it depends on the feel you're going for. And one of the key things, I guess I would say at this point, is you don't have to have near the amount of attention to detail that I had in the beginning, which I think sounds bad at first. 
But in the beginning, when I was putting these sets together, I was modeling all of the different little doodads and panels and computer control panels on the walls and everything and the bridge. And I was trying to be so accurate that I even wanted the numbers to be right on the keypads. Mm-hmm. And that will never ever show in any of our shots and never has. And it's it's little things like that now when I'm constructing a virtual set that I don't usually bother with because I wind up spending way too much time in minutia that as a director I know will never be on camera. And so the it's it's kind of finding this balance between attention to detail and and being able to get it done in a timely fashion. And so it's a decision you have to make in the process of when you're building your set and in the process of doing that you with the ver- with the measurements for instance that is sometimes important and other times not. So in the case of the bridge I knew that I wanted to have in a lot of cases the actors interacting with various parts of the bridge. For instance, I talk about this in one of my video blogs a little bit. There's the central platform, which is very iconic to the TOS bridge, where the captain's chair sits on the raised platform in the center and the helm is down from it. And, and the it's, it's a very tiered style. Right. And I knew that to help sell the illusion of the virtual sets, I would want the actors to, on occasion be able to step either up or down from that platform. And the reason why this is where building with real measurements comes in very handy, because I knew for a fact that when I constructed that model, I could measure it. It was about six inches high and however many inches or feet wide and long. And so then with my brother's help on this, he constructed a platform for me with the same measurements as the CG one. And so now when I go to composite my scene, I basically just line up the shot with the CG platform. So all of, so the angle matches and the scale matches, and then everything is lined up with the real set, basically the platform and the virtual set. And this allows the actors to step up and down or do anything they want with that platform. There's one shot in our teaser trailer where the captain is getting up off the floor and the platform was just immeasurably helpful for helping to sell that shot because there's part of it where his hand is off the platform gripping the edge of it a little bit and his foot is off of it while he's getting up and it's a little detail that goes quickly but it makes the set feel so much more real. So in that case, I knew that having the real world dimensions would help tremendously. And it does also just help to in construction of your virtual set to get the size right compared to your reference images. If you know the basic overall size of everything. And your reference images, are those just, do you have a display next to you where you're, you're freezing frames from enterprise or are you printing these like taking screenshots and blowing them up where you can see detail more? How are you doing that? I, I've always had one screen because having multiple monitors is nice, but I also like my setup where I have now, which is where I use a 32-inch TV, Mm -hmm. and it's a very large display to work with, which is nice. And so 
basically I went through on Netflix and just played various episodes and I used the print screen key on my keyboard and took a ton of screenshots of various parts of the ship and saved them as JPEGs in my reference folder. And then I would have them all open while I was working on the bridge and I would just alt tab in and out of different reference shots and I would zoom in, zoom out, etc., to to get the angle I needed for building that part of the set. How long did it take you to actually build your bridge set? I would say, man, that's a good question. A few hundred hours at least, because especially being the first set that I did, I was very rusty with my 3D skills, so there wound mm-hmm. up being a lot of parts that I redid. For instance, I um, I remade the walls probably two or three times before I was done with it. And then there's all the individual little panels I did and individual UV maps I did on all of those and getting the numbers right and, and all of that. So that was a very, very time-consuming set. And it's one that I even still I tweak if I need to when I have to go in and render a shot. And I'll tweak a little bit here and there because I'm never really done tweaking. It's interesting. 100 hours is actually less time than I was thinking. If I tried to do it, it would probably take me, I don't know, 100 days at least. <laughs> well, <laughs> hundreds of hours is what I said, you know, so we're so it's probably definitely on the upside of that, you know, two to two to 500, I'd say at least at, yeah. at the minimum. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is hard for me to calculate because I've basically spent most of my free time, which especially these days is all I work on working on this film and so it's not like i have a a set time where i work you know an eight to five shift right i'm basically working throughout the day i'll take a little break here and there or if i have to go to an appointment or something you know i and i'll come back and i'll work some more at night what have you it's basically just a constant process mm-hmm. yeah it's about how my schedule is as well there's no no set starting or ending time yeah. i know what you mean well, beyond the bridge, what other sets have you built? Well, I've done the corridors of the ship, and I've done engineering, and that though, and the captain's quarters. Those are the sets that I've constructed myself of the NX. I've also had the help of a couple artists doing the airlock for me and the briefing room. And the what I'm calling the science room, basically the room where they can analyze objects and they have equipment and so on. So I've had some people working on on those specific sets for me. But other than the ship itself, I've also done some various sets at Starfleet HQ. I've done the Admiral's office and another office that I'm calling the war room where they have meetings and this cool projector display kind of thing on the wall. Um, I've done various alien interiors and Romulan interiors, and of course, all of the interiors, um, well, I guess the only interior from the opening scene, which is that Iconian space station, the world gate. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, and in those cases, when something like the world gate, where it's much less important for the actors to interact with the environment specifically, or in the case of some of the other alien interiors that I've done for the horizon itself, I have been much more lenient with using the measurements because it's not as important to 
get that minute in my detail for those sets. So there's definitely been a lot of sets, and honestly, some I still haven't finished because I kind of take it as I go with various scenes. And uh, so there's still more to do on that too. So if you have a scene where you're going to have actors put into the virtual set, but they're not going to be interacting like in the way you talked about earlier where the captain's hand is touching the platform. It doesn't matter that much if the if the set is built to scale like in relation to how tall the actors would be, for example? Not as much, no. Usually I'll start off with basic measurements. For instance, like if I'm doing corridors or any kind of room, I'll just get the basic measurements down, you know, a few feet wide and however many feet long and however many feet tall. Just so, because for me, doing that helps me get the basic shape together in a realistic way. But then I tend to switch over to just generic units and and eyeball it from there because I find it much easier to work with when you don't necessarily have a plan, which is how I approach a lot of my designs because I have a lot of images in my head and for a lot of these designs I haven't had a concept artist so I'll just kind of go at it and see where the inspiration takes me and then if I need to have something in the scene for an actor to specifically interact with then I'll flip back over into the real world measurements and build the object and place it to that for instance another place where this is important is there's a scene where Tamar exits the turbo lift and walks over to the railing behind the captain's chair on the bridge. And so I went into 3DS Max and I measured the distance on the floor from the doorway to the turbo lift to the railing. And it turned out to be like six feet, seven inches, something like that, if I recall right. And so then when we were shooting, I put markers on the floor for Callie, the actress, for where she could start walking to where she could stop walking. And then in post, I just lined up the start of her sequence with the turbo lift and the end of it with the railing. And it worked out brilliantly. But for more generic stuff where an actor is just walking down a corridor, for instance, I'm generally much less concerned with the measurements. It's just more about making sure it looks okay. You talk about preferring generic units. I'm just picturing you designing your sets <laughs> using generometers. Right. Well, I guess for for somebody who does... It, to clarify, in <laughs> in most 3D apps, you yeah. can set the, the default units that it works with. So you can mm -hmm. use meters, millimeters, inches, feet, or just quote-unquote generic units. And I tend to find generic units the easiest to work with because it's just a number. And especially with feet and inches, it starts to get very confusing for me to look at because it's everything mm -hmm. is labeled as like zero apostrophe one uh, quotation mark two so on whereas with units it's just you know 12 or 16 mm -hmm. or what have you and so i tend to find that much easier to work with when i don't need to be specific with my measurements plus then in the real world you would be thinking like everything is so far away right because you're used to seeing everything up close on the screen and if that's 10 feet what's that Right. Well, that actually is a problem at times, too, when when working on this kind of thing, because often the way we see things in our head is much different than 
how it will actually look on screen. Mm-hmm. And so it is very important to have a solid concept or previs or something like that of how everything is going to be laid out in terms of not only distance, but camera angle and what the set's going to look like and so on. Otherwise, you find that you tend to get into compositing and it doesn't look quite right. Well, now that we've talked about how we put together a virtual set, last time when we did the previous episode of Continuing Mission, when we talked about general video production, we did talk a lot about green screens and actors and how you position actors in front of the green screens. So let's talk about integrating actors into virtual sets. Well, the first and most important part is always the lighting. Lighting, 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 lighting. If your lighting doesn't match with your virtual set, then it's basically just downhill from there. And this is one of the reasons why I really hate to do integrations with photographs. I'd much rather do it with a virtual set because you have so much more room to play with things and play with the camera angle and play with little bits of the lighting if you have to, to make it match just right. And this is easier, of course, if you have your photograph ahead of time, if you're using photos, because you can look at it and you can position your actor just right and position your light sources just right. And even then it can sometimes be a pain. But with your CG 3D models, if you need to go in and adjust the light a little bit to compensate, you can adjust the brightness or the location of, of your CG light to match more what you shot with your actor. And with that, another really important thing is setting up a, a lighting scheme that looks interesting. And one of the things I've found is that with even real-world cinematography, there's often so much going on with lighting that makes a shot interesting that you wouldn't even think about that also has to be replicated in your CG. So for instance, adding interesting shadows in the background, shafts of light here and there, maybe adding a little bit of fog to your environment. And it can do so much to lend a bit of realism to your shots that otherwise might feel coldly CG. There's a lot of other tricks too to get it right one of the one thing that can really help is having a lot of depth and separation of your objects so for instance having something that is both in front of and behind of your actors to make it feel like they're in this set instead of just pasted in on top for instance on the bridge uh one thing that always helps is having various consoles that block a part of an actor and that way it feels like they're actually there because they're behind the console, but in front of the walls. Mm-hmm. Or if you have, you know, destruction going on, you can have various layers of smoke and some of them are in the background and some of them are in front of the actor and so on. So it's all about selling the illusion. And in the end, it's really whatever you can do and whatever you need to do to make it look real. And in that vein, sometimes I've had to change shots based on what I originally imagined to make it look a little bit more real. But in the end, that's what's most important to me. When you're watching movies, as you talk about this, it makes me wonder when you're watching movies after doing so much of this work on horizon, 
Can you follow the story or are you just dissecting what's going on on the screen all the time about how that's composited and how maybe this should have been done differently? You know, surprisingly, I can still follow the story, but I think that's because I I love writing so much too. Uh-huh. So the problem is though, I am not just dissecting the compositing, but then I'm also dissecting the script and the story and what this means for that character and so on. And it really is, though, a totally different way of watching a movie or a TV show than than what it is before you do all this stuff. I, I find I look at things a lot differently. I'll, I'll notice a specific camera angle and I'll think to myself, well, why did they do that? What does it imply for this character? Or I'll notice a specific lighting choice and 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 ask myself the question of how does that aid the storytelling of this scene and it's actually something that i'm glad i've gotten in the habit of doing because you then begin to pick up a lot of new tricks for yourself too because i see all this stuff and i take it in and i see something that particularly sticks out to me and i think oh man i need to do that on my on my movie or my next project or i need to store that in the databanks and come back to it for a scene that'll really fit so it's it's both I mean I don't really think there's actually any negatives to it. A lot of people said to me that it seems like it would ruin the experience for you when you know everything and and when mm-hmm. you're constantly dissecting it, but I actually find it makes the experience much more interesting. Yeah, I I I think it makes it more interesting and one reason I asked you that is just that myself as a designer for 20 years when I look at anything, a magazine or a book or packaging in the grocery store or anywhere it's I look at it in a certain way as a designer, you know, and I notice things about it that people don't generally notice. I'll even show my wife, like, look at this and what, what? And I'll point something (laughs) out and my eye goes straight to it. And so I was just curious how all this work plays into things. Because I know when I listen to audio as well now, like I can really tell where where edit points are, maybe that you would never otherwise notice. But I just know that it's been edited right there because... I do it myself every single day and you, you can kind of pick up on that nuance. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I've done a lot of audio work as well. Um, done a lot of recording and mixing and mastering and being a musician myself as well. It's interesting, especially when I was doing a lot of song recording and mixing, I started listening very carefully to professional recordings from Mm -hmm. various artists and, I began to notice a lot of things that I never noticed before. And it gave me ideas for how to mix and master my own stuff. And the more of those techniques I learned, the more I started hearing them and the things I was listening to, even when I wasn't selectively trying to figure out what they were doing. And I think it adds a lot to the process. And it certainly, for me, it gives me a much greater appreciation for the people that put things together, whether it's, um, you know, whether it's design work or sound or film, when you know what goes into something, you can always appreciate much more w- the the work that somebody did to do it. It's it's kind of like how I always get upset when somebody will uh, deride a fast food employee or a garbage person mm-hmm. because it's it's easy to say, well, I don't want to be a burger flipper because. Who, who's a you know nobody is a burger flipper that it's not an important job but 
where would our society be if we couldn't eat out anymore and if we didn't have people to take away our garbage every week and so on? You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of hard work involved for a lot of people in, in any job. Absolutely. And I think it's important for people to just understand what goes into any job and it only enhances the experience. Yeah, definitely. Coming back to the sets, before you started working on Horizon, had you done much work with green screens before or is Horizon the the first big project? Because I know you've done other smaller films before. I'd done a little, but not too much. The The main thing I did was a short film called Eliza Newton, which I also wrote and directed. And that was like my first big attempt into mm-hmm. doing a visual effects project. And it did. It, there were parts that worked okay, and then a lot of parts that didn't. But it was a really good experience, and gave me a lot of ideas for how to approach my next project. So then, when you came into Horizon, th- this is what I was curious about: if you hadn't done much before, the first time you got the actors into a situation where they're in front of a green screen, what was that experience like? The the first time trying to integrate them with these enterprise sets. It was mostly terrifying wondering if it would actually work or not mm-hmm. because I, I I felt like I knew theoretically that it should work, but it was still largely untested for me. Of course, I've done I had done a lot of, of tests myself beforehand, but still that first time in front of the green screen, and especially with that shot I talked about earlier with the captain and the platform, when I lined that up in post and I saw that the platform matched exactly and the camera tracking worked out perfectly because that specific shot actually was a shot that had a moving camera on set. So that had to be motion tracked as well. And it all fit together perfectly. It I can't really describe the, the sense of accomplishment and the sense of, wow, this actually worked that I felt. And uh, now it's really just become you know, an everyday thing, almost mm-hmm. literally. But there were a lot of untested things that I that I was doing that I was hoping and felt would work, but I wasn't really sure. Moving beyond that, then, what, what's been the most challenging shot, most challenging scene for you integrating the actors into sets on Horizon? I would say... Basically, anything with a moving camera. Most of the camera movements I do, I do in post because one of the tricks that I learned or thought of after doing Eliza Newton was to shoot a lot of my plates for my actors vertically. So I'd turn the camera on its side Hmm. and shoot the actors that way because then you get the full resolution of your camera for an actor you basically can capture them from head to toe and use most of your sensor whereas if you're shooting normally you have a ton of space on the sides that's lost and so what i tend to do is i shoot a lot of when i have camera movements i shoot the plates individually for each actor and then i will place them in 3d space around my set and then move the 3d camera and render it that way and it tends to be much more doable on this budget because I don't have a wraparound green screen where I can actually place the actors in all their actual positions and move Mm -hmm. my real camera. And you also just don't have to deal with motion tracking your camera. So 
in that sense, it's not too difficult. But there is the sense of you have to have the foresight to line up the direction that your actor is facing and the angle that the camera will be for each part of that shot when the camera will eventually be moving. So, for instance, there's times where the actor has been angled just slightly the wrong way, and that makes things a lot harder in post because then your camera movement doesn't work out as planned. But generally speaking, most of the shots are fairly consistent in terms of their complexity. And the difficulty comes from whenever there's a hiccup in shooting that makes it harder in post. And so, for instance, the green screen didn't get lit as evenly as I would like, so that makes compositing a little bit harder. Or anytime you have people with long hair uh, that's very flowing or moves around a lot makes life a lot harder because compositing hair is a major pain. So if you had Captain Claw from Star Trek V in your film, (laughs) you would be in real trouble. Yeah, that would be most unfortunate. <laughs> but I do have similar situations, though, because there are a few people with big hair in this yeah. movie. For instance, the Iconians in the opening scene. Yeah, no, I know how you feel because for one of the things, I worked on magazines for years and years, and when we do covers, we often have to deal with hair also. Oh, yeah. And especially with women and, and big and frizzy hair. And you have to, say, put it across the nameplate of the publication, for example. Even that can be very tricky. And of course, yeah. then you're you're not dealing with any kind of movement or anything. I lucked out that uh, two of my leads, the captain and the first officer, are bald. So uh, that made life easier. But there, there, of course, are a number of women in the cast, too. And uh, that makes life harder. Do you think that's really why Patrick Stewart got the role of Captain Picard? The, the <laughs> video guys said, you know, it's going to be a lot easier to put this show together if we have a bald guy. Oh, yeah, totally. That was <laughs> I think that was definitely it. And that's also why he got X-Men, of course, too, uh-huh. because especially by then they had so many effects. They're like, you know what? Yeah. We were going to give Xavier hair, even though he's never had it before, but Patrick Stewart, there you go. <laughs> well, we talked a moment ago a little bit about sound as well. Let's talk about sound design and capturing sound and how important that is to what you're doing. Sound is just as important, if not more important, than picture when it comes to filmmaking. And I think a lot of people forget this. I see a lot of not just fan films, but lower budget films in general where they have a good picture, but the sound, it just does not match the level of quality Mm -hmm. Or it just ruins the immersion. For instance, I've seen fan films where they're supposed to be walking on the bridge of the starship and you hear like wood creak from their floor Mm -hmm. or you uh, you get an echo from your sound that otherwise normally wouldn't be there. And so getting the sound design down is incredibly important. One of the issues we've had is we did a shoot at a really nice studio in Detroit, but it's mainly a photography studio. So it's not set up for sound Mm -hmm. and it's huge. The ceiling was really high. It was wide, expansive and had a huge screen that we used, but the echo was incredible. It was like an echo chamber and even with a close mic shotgun on a boom pole, it's still picked up. So we'll probably have to wind up doing ADR for all those scenes, Mm -hmm. which is where we go back in and re-record all the dialogue in post. 
and it knowing where your uh, final shots will be will help a lot because you can for instance there are a couple of those scenes that take place in a large cavern so i'll probably be able to get away with using the source audio because it's supposed to be a bit echoey anyway but close micing your actors no matter where you are is always important but sometimes there's other issues for instance when shooting in my basement sometimes the crickets like to come out outside (laughs) and so there are a couple scenes that will have to adr because you can just hear in the background of the bridge cricket cricket you can't just have you know one of the actors one of the characters make a comment about i thought we got rid of all those iconian crickets (laughs) <laughs> well, actually, what they're doing is the captain <laughs> likes to play forestry sounds on the bridge. Okay. It calms him in the heat calms of battle. Him, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes they'll play rainstorms and lawnmowers too, mm-hmm. which really yeah, helps. I like that one. Yeah, now, I know what you mean. I mean, like here in the studio, in the summer, it gets very, very hot here, and we don't have central mm-hmm. air conditioning in Japan in houses generally. And so, you know, I have a limiter, I have a hardware limiter, and everything set up here, so I can normally record with my windows open and. You can't even hear trucks going by or anything outside. But this time of year, I can't in August. Uh, it's September now, but going back to early August, because the cicada come out and yeah. they're so loud that you can hear them all the way through the limiter. There's just this constant buzzing noise <laughs> in the recording. That Yeah, that is the, that's the biggest issue. And um, we have had... It's even harder with film than it is with with a podcast because there's so much variation in yeah. levels of speaking for a lot mm-hmm. of scenes. There's, you know, a, a quiet, intimate scene where people are almost whispering. And even some of the softest sounds, a limiter won't fix that right. because it's, it has a hard time distinguishing between the voices and the noise. Mm-hmm. And um, it it can get really frustrating. And especially, you know, you mentioned having, you know, having the windows open and stuff when, shooting in the summer we had the problem of the ac coming on so we'd have to shut the Mm -hmm. ac off which is fine because in the basement the temperature stays fairly consistent but then everybody upstairs gets annoyed because any upstairs gets up to 80 degrees but then in the winter everybody's getting annoyed because we have to shut the ac off or the the heat off and it not only gets cold upstairs but then it gets really cold in the basement too Mm -hmm. because the heater is literally right next to my green screen so just save save uh, all your andorian scenes for winter (laughs) i wish i had andorians that would have been perfect (laughs) so i mean but there are a lot of issues to consider with sound and it is like the I've even noticed this on uh, episodes occasionally of Star Trek Continues, for instance. It's such a great show, and then I'll notice something about the sound that that instantly made me realize that this was, a, in a lot of cases, a volunteer production. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that to, um, to deride them, but it's just... it's. It, it's it's amazing how even the slightest thing can take you out of the immersion of a scene. Mm-hmm. And I think you're more sensitive to those things than the average right. viewer because yeah. you're doing your own film and so you're really noticing those moments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's even something as simple as when an actor strays slightly outside of the axis of the microphone mm-hmm. and their voice becomes slightly more echoey. And that's just something that you never hear on a big budget production, mm-hmm. but it's a lot harder to deal with at this scale because you can't always, 
have a boom operator as I often have issues. I wind up getting the mic stand for my boom mm-hmm. operator and that causes issues as well. I think we need robots who can handle boom mics. That's going to be a <laughs> that use. Would... You know, I see, I see all the robots that they're creating here in Japan right now and boom mic operator surprisingly has not been mentioned as a job yet but it should be that would actually be incredibly useful though when you think about it because being a boom op is so incredibly tiring to to have a robot whose arms don't get tired when it has to hold up the mic for hours on end i mean suppose there's ethical issues with uh, are you abusing your robots Mm -hmm. but uh that actually if we ever do get advanced robotics i could see that being a thing oh it would be a thing for sure yeah well, let's uh, wrap up here with uh, what I wanted to ask you about is, and it could be set design, it could be sound, it could be any of these things that we've talked about, but you're you're deep into Horizon now. You've been working on this for a long time, and as you've mentioned, this is what you do all the time, every day. What's the single biggest challenge that you've faced so far? I would have to say staying focused, um, because especially with this kind of project where I'm doing so much of it myself, it gets now almost two years in, it'll be two years this December. It gets very hard at times to buckle down and focus on those minute details of building a virtual set or getting every little bit right. And whereas in the beginning, it was much easier because it was a new project. It was exciting. I was learning new things. And a lot of times now it becomes much more of a busy work kind of thing. And so I would say that the challenges of maintaining the level of work and attention to detail and passion for the project over a long period, especially when you do so much work yourself is the hardest part and is much more challenging than any technical issue I've had to overcome. So, so yeah, so interesting. So, yeah, and I understand that for sure. Not a technical thing, but just sticking with the project over such a long period of time. Well, it's because it's not an issue, because I think any technical problem, it may sound a little too black and white, but any technical problem I think can be overcome by tenacity and drive and willing to figure it out no matter what but when you get into this kind of problem which is more of a a personal issue not necessarily a lack of passion for the project but just it gets kind of stale on occasion it gets much more difficult to overcome and the the way i've dealt with that is i've i've just had to force myself to take breaks and the way i did that recently was I forced myself to take a break and finally play through Mass Effect 2 and 3, which I never did. <laughs> right. And uh, I've gotten back into the Ninja Turtles a lot lately and I've been <laughs> reading the comics. Yeah. And so, you know, it's things like that that can help take your mind off of something that you've been so focused on consistently for two years and give you a bit of a fresh perspective that really helps for me anyway. I totally get that. I have the same experience with the work that I do as well, especially the stuff outside of the podcasting world. Although just editing audio can get you there as well. Like you really need to break from it. So, 
Yeah, it gets so tedious. And, mm. and the nice thing is, too, when you take a break, it can be kind of inspiring because you've been so mired in this one specific story for a mm. long time yeah. that when you get to hang out with Garrus Vicarian for a long time and Commander Shepard and the Ninja Turtles, it gives you, it opens you back up to horizons that, no pun intended, um, that you've kind of forgotten about. Yeah, I wonder if that's why Douglas Adams kills everyone off at the end of Mostly Harmless. Like, I'm just, I'm done with these <laughs> characters. It's been too long working with the same story. You know, honestly, it's not a terrible idea from mm -hmm. a writing standpoint. Because I think that's one of the things a lot of TV shows suffer from. For instance, I think Heroes back in the day suffered from that a lot. Where it got to the point where there wasn't really anything more they could do with the characters they had, but they weren't willing to kill them off or they weren't willing to move on and, and just have new characters. And I think it creates a sense of freshness that really can help your storytelling. Well, let's close out here with an update on Horizon, a progress update. What can people look forward to here? We're in September right now as we record this, 2014, so... Over the course of the next few months, what's on Slate? Well, still planning a winter release, hopefully December, but I'm saying more generally winter now because who knows. But the trailer, the new trailer, which is our full length, two and a, close to the three minute trailer, uh, it is locked. The edit is locked and there's just a couple shots now that I'm finishing and Matt Ratzel who is a friend of mine and is a composer and does sound, is writing a music track, a score for the trailer, and doing the sound design for the trailer. So it is very nearly completed, and he's got the lock. He's working on that, and I'm just finishing the last couple shots now. So you can look forward to that very soon. Awesome. And where can people find Horizon and all the updates on that? Star Trek horizon.com or facebook.com slash st horizon are our two main venues great and of course people can find you on twitter as tommy g doggy dog is that right <laughs> i think i should actually just register that handle now just for you you should yeah it'll be your but, special account yeah i'll just i'll send you messages there yeah it'll just be like our inside <laughs> joke but the actual Twitter account that I tweet on occasionally is Tommy G Dog. That's T O M M Y G D A W G. Because why not? <laughs> because why not? Exactly. All right. Well, Tommy, thanks for coming on again to talk about video production. And we'll look forward to having you back down the road as you get closer to releasing Horizon. For sure. Anytime. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed hearing about video production from Tommy today, but this is only one of the things that we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. They, they look at the original series episodes and they see thematically what it is that works and they pick that in order to explore like a different side of it. Earl Grey. No, do you guys seriously no. not know why they have red and green lights? No. Not all of us have read Ships of the Line. Okay, no, 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 no. Times. Wait, is this a Ship of the Line? I'm only on like chapter no, one. No, no. I'm talking about like real ships today. Have you been on a ship, Darren? The Orb. 
them being adversarial, I, I don't think necessarily was the only way they could have gone. Um, it makes for a great story, but it just made me wonder, just in a possible universe, what would have happened? I think it's important, though, that she, as the religious leader, is not sold on the idea that this outsider is their emissary. To the journey! Endgame cannot make my list. <laughs> I, uh, I don't have as much hatred for Endgame as you or apparently everybody else does. Oh, I've, not that I'm bitter or anything, no. Warp 5. So I would argue in the case of what Paxton is doing here in firing a weapon at San Francisco, which luckily missed and went to the bay. And I don't know if, I guess George and Gracie aren't there, right, in the 22nd century, so they're okay, but... The Ready Room. They could have really diverged with what we knew of Will and made Thomas's own unique character. I mean, he is, but like, if we can get multiple Burial episodes, why, you know, why can't Thomas Riker have more than one episode? <laughs> Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. And he happens to figure it all out. Yeah, uh, that, that's enough to drive an audience. We know we need to get field. Will Wheaton on the show because I will defend Wesley in this episode against the guy who played Wesley. <laughs> okay. Commentary, Trek stars. There was an interview, I think, with, with JJ where they were talking to him and he was saying that, you know, oh, my, my dad was friends with Nicholas Meyer back in the day. I remember going to Meyer's house when I was a kid. And he saw he had a whole bunch of really cool things in his house, and I thought, I would like to break some of the things. Literary treks. But I do like I want to see cover. Spock with a perm. Oh, gosh. Well, I think I've got a Photoshop yeah. project in my future with this cover right here. Melodic treks. It's like, oh, this wow. happened. Oh, oh, this is so good. <laughs> <laughs> it was. No it was just that amazing. That's uh, reacts. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You can find us everywhere that you get your podcasts. We're all over the place. But if you're an Apple user, one way that you can help us out is by going into the iTunes store or your podcast application on your iPhone or your iPad and hit the subscribe button. Of course, you can stream the shows through those tools or you can even stream from the website. But when you subscribe, it helps us rise up in the search rankings, and that makes it easier for other fans to find Continuing Mission as they're searching for podcasts. Another factor in that are star ratings and written reviews. So while you're in there, please take a moment and leave us a rating and a written review. I love to hear what you think about the show, and it also does help other fans find the show as they're searching around through the just myriad of podcast choices that they have there in iTunes. Now, if you're not an Apple user, of course, we know not everyone uses an iPad or an iPhone or iTunes. We've got you covered as well. We want to make sure everyone can get the shows wherever they need to. So you'll find us on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. We're everywhere that you can get your podcasts. If there's some place where you get your audio and we're not there, please let me know because I do want to make sure that we have coverage of every outlet for podcasts that's out there. You can, of course, go to our website as well and stream the show. You can also download the MP3 file. You do that through the SoundCloud player. Just look in the upper right-hand corner of that player and you'll see the little button for downloading. And you can grab the RSS link if you have another tool that you want to drop that into. One more way that you can help us out, you can help us keep continuing mission coming to you, is to become a patron of the network. If you go to patreon.com slash trekafilm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekafilm, you'll find our current goals and all of our different milestone contribution levels, as well as the great perks that we have for you. 
These perks include early access to content when it's available, some exclusive content, even producer credits and seats on our content development team. I'd like to thank Michael Frisbee, who is an associate producer here on Continuing Mission, for his support of the show and the network and his help in developing content for everyone here. Michael is the founder of Star Trek Imperium, which is a Mirror Universe fan group. So if you're a fan of the Mirror Universe, be sure to go check out what Michael is doing there. You can find them at StarTrekImperium.org or look for the same name on Facebook. And you too can become a part of our team and help us keep content coming to you by going to patreon.com slash trekafilm and setting an amount that you would like to contribute to us each month to help us keep content coming to you. We really thank you for any help that you can give us in keeping the network going. Now, if you would like to send some feedback on today's show, if you have some thoughts on Horizon, if you have some thoughts on video production, or if there is a fan production that I haven't covered yet here on Continuing Mission that you would like to hear me talk about, that you would like me to bring people on so that we can all learn more about what they're doing, please let me know. I do keep my eyes open for things. I have some other things in the work, but there are so many wonderful productions out there these days. It's hard for me to catch them all. So I would really appreciate your help in cluing me in to something else that you'd like to hear about. And the way you can get in touch with me is to go to our website. Trek.afilm slash contact is where you'll find our contact form. Choose to send to a show and choose continuing mission, and that will come to me by email. You can also send me a voicemail. Just look in the sidebar on the show page on our website, and you'll find the tool there. Or go to speakpipe.com slash trekafilm. That's the word speak and the word pipe dot com slash trekafilm and you can use the mic on your web camera or your smartphone or your tablet to record a message to me and upload it to me as an mp3 file in social media you can find us in a number of places on twitter the network username is trekfm and my username is c brian jones the letter c and brian with a y on facebook you'll find the main page at facebook.com slash trekafilm you'll find me at facebook.com slash c brian jones and don't forget about the babel conference the babel conference is our new private closed group on facebook that is a replacement for the forums that we used to have on our website. It's designed for Trekafilm listeners, so it is closed. But if you're a listener, all you need to do is go there and click the Join button, and I'll let you in. We're having wonderful conversations over there. It's actually very vibrant. I've been very pleased with how quickly listeners have come in and all the great discussion that we're having there. It's a place for respectful and meaningful discussion, and I am happy to say that so far that has been the case. We've been having discussions like the ones we have here on the shows, which I really love. So I hope you'll join us over there. The way you get there is to type the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website and click Discussion on the menu bar. That'll take you right over there. Just click Join, and I'll let you in. If you click Join, and it's like six or eight hours before I let you in, remember I'm in Japan. My days are reversed from everyone in the States, so I might just be sleeping at that time. But as soon as I'm up and I see it, then I'll be happy to give you your credentials for the Babel Conference. And I hang out in that group quite a bit myself, so if you'd like to talk to me about Star Trek beyond the 140 characters of Twitter, that's a great place to go. Also in the network, if you want to hear me talk more about Star Trek, I do a lot of different shows. There's Literary Treks, The Orb, Warp 5, Matterstream, Hyper Channel, and also The Ready Room, and the official podcast of Star Trek Axanar, which I co-host with Alec Peters. So check out all of those shows and find out what else I'm talking about in the world of Star Trek. 
Before I let you go, I would like to tell you about our sponsor for today's show, Audible.com. They're one of my favorite services ever. In fact, I've been a customer for 14 years now, going on 15, in fact. And I, I just grabbed a new book this morning. I listen to Audible books every single day. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free book of your choice just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. They have a lot of great Star Trek books in audio format. Most new releases these days, not of Star Trek books, unfortunately, but of most other types of books, come out in audio format at the same time they come out in print. So it is a wonderful way to read all of these books that you want to read, but you just really don't have time to sit down and open up a printed book or, you know, pull it up in iBooks or on Kindle. This is a wonderful service. So I hope you'll go check it out and get your free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And if you decide not to stick with them, you'll get to keep that book, so there's nothing to lose. But when you support them, it really does help us keep the show coming to you every week. And we really thank them for their support of the show and the network. One more thing here. This episode of Continuing Mission is also brought to you by Enterprise in Space. Enterprise in Space is a great project of the nonprofit National Space Society. And what Enterprise in Space is doing is designing and launching an 8-foot orbiter that will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space. These experiments can be designed by students kindergarten through postgraduate. A hundred will be selected and they will go into this orbiter, which will be launched, it will orbit, and it will be returned to Earth and then put in a museum. You can become a virtual crew member, you can have your name carried into space, and all at the same time, you'll be supporting something that I feel is extremely important, which is science education. So go check it out at enterpriseinspace.org. There's actually a design contest for the orbiter. So if you are a designer, if you you know have an idea for a ship, you know you don't have to be an engineer to enter, but if you have an idea for a ship, you can actually enter the competition and the winning entry will be built and sent into space. Again, this is at enterpriseinspace.org. Go over, find out more, and get your seat on the mission. Well, thanks for listening today, everyone, and thank you to Tommy, as always, for dropping by and talking Star Trek with me. I hope you enjoyed the show, and join me again next time on this continuing mission, and let's see what's out there. <laughs>